so this is what I call like the trillion dollar Venn diagram of success, right? Uh, I just made that up. But <laughs> so you draw those circles of your skills and say, okay, well, I am now not like one in a million. I'm one in a billion, right? Or one in five billion, whatever that is. And if you can convert that into some kind of monetizable business thing or whatever, that's when magic sort of happens. So, so that's kind of thing number one is right. like, what's your thing? What are your skills? Um, and what drives the value? Like how much value will that intersection create is two things. One is how rare is that intersection? Whether it's two circles or three circles or whatever, how rare is it? And then the other one is... So on the pod right now, we've got Darmesh. Darmesh is the uh, founder of HubSpot. He's uh, well, your technical title is CTO, right? That is correct. I see I think you this more. This means that uh, that you have to do the ad reads for your own company today. <laughs> why are we talking about HubSpot? You do the ad reads. <laughs> you tell people why to buy. You're talking about HubSpot because you guys do a much better job. I am terrible <laughs> at that. I'm terrible at the promotion side of things. But the uh, Sean, do you? You're renting a house right now. Yeah. And Darmesh, you do not rent though, right? Not anymore. I did for a long, long time. I'm a big believer in rentals, as it turns out. But I, uh, I'm staying in Brooklyn for the summer, and I rent uh, a furnished house and it or a apartment, and it is so much better than owning a place and having it to worry is. about stuff all the time. It is so much I better. I, I think I, I'm on the renting train. I think now, like. I've kind of been there, but like, I actually love it more. Do you like it? Cause Sean, you owned a place in San Francisco for like four years and then now you rent again. Way better. In fact, every time something breaks, I now just have joy to be like, let me call somebody else. It's their problem. It's their exactly. cost to fix. They have to arrange it. They have to do whatever. And I don't have to think about it. Plus also in California, property taxes are like insane or like in San Francisco. Cause the, the, you know, the house price is so high. So, you know, even if you try to do the calculation, it's so hard to beat just this annual property tax every single time on rent. Wait, so Dumbash, if you if you had the choice again, I mean, I, I think maybe perhaps you bought because like your wife wanted to or your kids wanted to. But if it was up to you, it, even with a family, would you be a renter? If it was up to me, yes, um, because just the the decrease in maintenance and wear and tear on one's psyche and soul that ownership uh, you know bestows upon you is just not worth it if that's that's my thing it's just like like i don't want to worry about those things i want to i want to get as close to like living in the matrix as i possibly can right and renting is a step closer to being in the matrix where you don't have to worry about physical things and atoms and things like that it's like oh, that's somebody else's problem i just show up how how many people in your socioeconomic like ballpark like uh, you know founders of multi-billion dollar companies or people like you, do you think also rent? Because I think that'd be a, a sh if it were a fair amount, that'd be fairly shocking to a lot of people. But do you know a bunch of people that are similar to you that still rent? I know people that are similar to me in terms of that they would prefer renting because I've talked to them about this, but almost everyone I know now, once you get a family and once you have like other things that you're trying to factor in, um, for instance, uh, you know, one of the things my wife loves gardening and loves, loves having a yard and that's kind of hard to do in a rental. Um, not that you can't do it, but it's, um, right. Yeah. Well, one thing that a, a guy told me who, who's similarly, was, you know, I think he's probably got like a 10 or 10 or 20 million dollar house. He was like it. He's like renting is amazing until you want the until your wife wants a specific house. And then once your wife wants a specific house or in a specific neighborhood, that neighborhood like like higher end neighborhoods have no rentals. So you just yes. can't get into that neighborhood, you, which means you can't have whatever. So then you're forced into a different path. 
That's and so fair. I thought, you know, it's a it's a version of uh, good problems to have. So we'll, we'll count it that way. Um, all right. What are we ta- what are we talking about? Where should we start? Well, you have know, a man. few things left over from the last episode, Sean. I don't know if we want to jump into some of those. Um, Let, the let's very do one. The last let's do one, because I think you will have a take on this. So so have you ever read? I don't know. Do you know Paul Graham, by the way? I do. Uh, not like, have, we're not best buddies or anything, but I do know of him. I've met him. Yeah. So he's he from Boston, a, right? Or Cambridge? Cambridge. Yep. Yeah. So you guys know he, one another. He wrote a blog post back in 2008. It was October 2008. So this is like right after the, the crash. And it's it's just if you go to paulgram.com slash bad economy um, is the name of the blog post. And he makes this case where he goes, the economic situation is apparently so grim that some experts fear we may be in for a stretch as bad as the mid 70s, which is when Microsoft and Apple were founded. And as those examples suggest, like a recession may not be such a bad time to start a startup, but he, which you've heard before, but I thought there's one interesting part where he goes, I'm not saying it's a good time either. The truth is more boring. The economy doesn't matter much either way for, for a founder starting a startup. And I actually thought that was a really good point because I hear this so much. It's like, I'll talk to kind of young founders and they listen to Twitter and they listen to podcasts and they listen, you know, they listen to kind of these, like a lot of it's like, you know, VCs who are, you know, also pandemic experts and also, you know, you know, macroeconomists huh. as well. And so they hear, and then they, they sort of start to adjust their plans and their mental models and like their room for everything. And it's like, dude, if you're a startup, you're like an ant in this world. Does the ant care what's going on with the presidential election? No, like you basically just need to build a product. You need to carry your little piece of dirt. It's like build a product, get a customer, get 10 customers. Like, it doesn't matter if the if the economy is bad. If you can't get 10 customers, it's not going to work anyways. And so I thought it was a great little blog post talking about like kind of starting a, a startup during the downtime, which is where I think we're about to or we just officially entered a recession again. So yep. uh, I was curious, Darmesh, do you have any thoughts on that? All right. It's time for a little ad break. Ever wonder what a unicorn eats for breakfast? Okay. I don't actually know, but I do know that 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, marketing, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big on your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, go to HubSpot.com slash startups. Yeah, so my position is I I lean more towards kind of the uh, Paul Graham end of the spectrum, which is I think it's either neutral, that it doesn't matter, it's uh, one of the things you're suggesting, uh, towards positive. Um, And the positive elements of being in a a, a kind of downturning economy or recession is that uh, things become available that would not have been available to a startup before, like talent. Um, It's like, oh, well, there are people sitting at Meta, Facebook, or sitting at Google right now that may be reevaluating their lives, or they may have just been let go from a venture-backed company that raised 200 plus million dollars, right? So now you've got this um, talent that's coming on the market that might not have come on the market before. Uh, things that were super expensive, like buying Google AdWords or certain marketing channels because you have this glut of money and a glut of venture capital. Um, you know, I think of venture capital as a very efficient machine of turning like money from LPs into Google AdWords revenue, right? That's uh, They're just a conduit between the two. Um, and as in, in a downward economy, you're going to get less of that kind of glut of money flowing in, which drives the cost overall down for certain things that I think are important to entrepreneurs. So I'm, I'm generally net positive that a down economy is actually a relatively good time to start a startup. For like the last 18 months or, you know, whenever like the last 24 months, whenever things been booming, I've uh, my wife works at Airbnb and, uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends that work at Hub, obviously HubSpot and all these. And Sean was at Twitch. So we have like some some perspective on how on the salaries of big companies. And I've seen some of these salaries and they are crazy. 
crazy, 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 crazy. As the as like a leader and uh, the biggest shareholder of HubSpot, and you like see these see these numbers, are you thinking to yourself like this? Like we can't afford to pay someone like an entry level person two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. I don't know how this is going to work. Like what what's your perspective on that when when these salaries are going so high and now it's like a little bit normal, more normal. Yeah, but as a, as a startup, I mean, you can't afford those salaries anyway, right? Unless you're one of those kind of rare exceptions that has fifty plus million dollars going out of the gate, which is uh, very very rare. And so, you know, one of the things a founder has to kind of get good at, it's convincing really smart people to do this irrational thing, which is join you in your startup, right? And if you can't, if you can't do that, if you can't make that sale, which is the most important sale you'll make is being able to kind of attract people and then it's customers, um, it's not going to work. So you have to do one of, you know, two things, um, either recognize kind of superstar talent and give them something they can't get um, because it's beyond competence. It's like, oh, you'll learn more here. Oh, you're going to do your own startup someday. This is the place to get your startup MBA because you'll be exposed to a bunch of things. You'll meet your future co-founder of the company, those kinds of things. Um, either you have to do that or you have to say, I'm going to be really good at identifying diamonds in the rough, people that have not made it uh, to the 200 plus, 300,000 plus dollar salary yet, but they will someday. I caught them early in their kind of evolution. And so I can get them. There's that's the, so it has to be one or the other form of arbitrage. Otherwise, you, you, you can't play the game. That's just not, uh, I don't think it's viable. I, I, I'm doing, uh, when you're saying that, it's like resonating so much because it's, it's basically all the three things we just talked about, I'm doing. It's like I started the Milk Road in January this year. And so it's, you know, six, it's been, it's about to be six months or it's been six months. And um, it's like, here, let me start a crypto company right when crypto crashes, you know, like 70, 80%. And at the beginning, Ben, even uh, my co-founder, Ben, he was like, you know, um, the only thing I can see going wrong is if crypto goes in a bear market. I go, well, crypto is going to go to a bear market. Like that's like one of the few certainties of crypto is that it goes up and down. And when it does, it is dramatic in all uh, both ways. It goes. The elevator is dramatic in both ways. And I was like, you know, so it's just a question of like, do, do you, what do you think that kills it or do we just make it through? Like there's that's really all we have to think about here. Um, so that was the first part of like starting in a bad economy. The second one on talent was. I recently hired this guy and he quit a pretty well-known uh, venture back company that I think had just raised maybe 50 or a hundred million dollars. And he joined and I had talked to him a little bit before he joined, like he was thinking about doing his own startup. He had, we had traded a couple emails, nothing serious. Just he, had, he was wanting me to use his product. Then he took a job at this place. All right, whatever. I forgot about him. Then he emails me and I, I shared this on Twitter. He emails me subject line. I have made an irreversible decision. And I was like, okay, I got to click this. What's inside? And he's like, I just quit my job and I think you should hire me. And I was like, okay, direct and to the point. And he tells me why, blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, all right, boom, I'm sold. Very bold approach. I already liked your hustle before this because when you were hustling to try to get me as your customer, I was like, this guy's good. Um, so, okay, let's do this. And I made him a job offer, which was not like, you know, a Silicon Valley job offer, but the guy lives in San Francisco. He was working for a Silicon Valley startup. So he was like, Oh, dude, that's like a 50% pay cut. And I was like, um, and I didn't, I didn't say this out loud, but in my head, what I, what I felt, I, I told him, I was like, that's what I can afford to pay right now. And like, you, look, you come crush it. The sky's the limit, but like, that's what I can pay you right now. Uh, sight unseen. And I said, and in my head, I was about to tell him the, the line that I had heard from Warren Buffett. Uh, you guys probably heard the story, but when Warren Buffett goes and tries to work for his, you know, kind of hero or whatever, Ben Graham, and he's like, you know, I'll work for you for free. And Ben Graham goes, your price is too high, sir, which is which is the, the truth, which is the idea that, that you got to shadow Ben Graham and work side by side with him every day was you should be paying for that if you really want to be like a successful investor. That's how I felt 
And I didn't want to say it because it's kind of arrogant, but it's like, dude, if I take you under my wing, my team is like three people. If you become one of those three and you're working out of my, he came over to my house yesterday, you're sitting by me working out of, you know, side by side every day. Like really I'm providing more value to you than you are providing to me at that point. And like, there's still a, you know, I, I, I appreciate the, the value you bring, but let's like the, the dollar amount is um, like uh, the salary dollar amount is not what, not the value you're getting. Uh, and I think he knows that intuitively. And that's why he said yes. But like uh, that Ben Graham story he, always stands he out a family. No, no, he's a young, young guy. Just graduated from college. But here's the thing. I think people have a couple of thoughts on that. One is, the salary slash compensation is just one vector of value that you get from a company that you join, right? Another one that you get is you get the learning, whatever it is that they get exposed you to. Another one that you get is a network that you build while you're there, right? So there's all these other things that also in kind of in aggregate and maybe, and I think it's common for people to over-index on the compensation or the kind of current compensation um, and under-index on other things that, um, and then there's just the just raw emotional value. Do you like being around the people that you're around? Uh, do you enjoy the idea that you're working on? Like, is it, you know, those things matter, as it turns out. Um, I have a fun HubSpot story. So when we started on this compensation thing, um, you know, Brian and I had to pick salaries for ourselves, something more than zero. And so we picked $5,000 a month, right? It's like, okay, well, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a number. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, below market value, we'd been out in the market for a while and had worked in our lives. Uh, so when we hired uh, employee number three, um, we had to decide what we were going to pay them, $5,000. Hired employee number four, $5,000. And so we just built this like, okay, if you're here for the salary, you're here for the wrong reason, right? That, that's not why you're going to join this Motley crew of, uh, of folks. And that lasted for like a while. It's like we, and, then we, and then it kind of has this inertia built in where it's like, okay, well, all of us sitting in the room chatting with you that we're trying to get you to join the company are all paying each other, I mean, paying ourselves $5,000 a month. Now, what do you think you should be able to get when all of us are <laughs> making $5,000? Of course, that doesn't last forever, and you have to... Uh, what, what, what was the pitch at that time? So it's not like, you know, no offense to, to HubSpot, but it's not the sexiest idea. You're not saying we're building the electric car here. You know, like you didn't have that going for you. Um, you know, you might have had a, like a, you know, your own magnetism, which is like, you know, like for me, I get this cheat code because like this guy, he listens to the podcast. And, and this happens. This podcast is a great talent pipeline for us because people will listen to it. And over time, they just they decide for themselves either. I think this guy's a dummy and he annoys me. Or I think yeah. this guy's smart and I really like, you know, I'd love to be, hang out with these guys. I think I could learn a bunch from them. And so yeah. it becomes an unfair advantage, but you didn't have that back in the day. So what was your, how did you convince people to do this $5,000, you know, Lego block of uh, salary building? Yeah. So we cheated a little bit, right? Because um, of the first eight people in the company, seven of them uh, came out of MIT Sloan, the same school that Brian and I went to and we met in class. So it was kind of in-network kind of thing. It's like, okay, well, it's just a bunch of friends that sort of know each other in network or whatever. Let's, let's go do this thing. Right. And it's also, right. and they were kind of far enough along in their careers that they were not missing meals or anything like that. Right. They had just gone to you know business school or relatively uh, good business school. And, and so that was it. It's like, and then the other thing, and this is the uh, part, there's equity, but there's also the, like, this is not that risky, dude. Like, let's say this doesn't work out and we end up being chumps of the ideas really bad three, six months from now you will basically be able to pick up where you left off, right? There's like, there's no loss other than the opportunity cost of those three to six months. This is not like a irreversible lifetime decision that I've made this call and that's all I'm going to have to be able to do for the next five or 10 years. Um, and that was enough. It's yeah. Um. All right, everyone, a quick break because I want to fill you in on a little experiment that I'm doing. I've got a new project. It's called Money Wise. It's a personal finance podcast for high net worth people or young people who are on their way to becoming high net worth. 
when I made a little bit of money, I didn't even know how much money I should be spending each month. Should it be 10,000, 30,000, 50,000? And I didn't really have a lot of people to ask. So I created a podcast called Money Wise because I wanted to figure out what are some of the things that people who have a lot of cash and who have a high net worth, what do they do with it? The first episode is with a friend of mine. He sold his company for $200 million when he was 31 years old. He gets super transparent about his monthly expenses, his portfolio, how it impacts his happiness, everything. And so I want you guys to check it out. It's called Money Wise. That's one word. You can find it on my Twitter bio. I'm the Sam Parr. Or you can just type in Money Wise on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, back to the pod. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about the HubSpot Podcast Network. If you like podcasts like this, you should check out some other cool podcasts. One is called Business Made Simple. It's hosted by Donald Miller, and it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. And what he does is he makes it easy to take the mystery out of growing your business. There's an episode that you should check out called What You Should Put in a Job Description to Get the Perfect Hire. And in this episode, Donald Miller looks at the whole hiring process and how important it is to emphasize both the the positive attributes and the drawbacks to future candidates. And you'll learn why being self-aware as a leader will help you avoid hiring disasters. So check it out. Go listen to Business Made Simple wherever you get your podcasts. Well, did things change? Uh, How many people do you think... um, how many people do you think at HubSpot have made like eight figures because of their equity? And once you worked with those people for a long time and you're like, oh shit, like we, the company went public and like, you don't need to work anymore, which, <laughs> and, and does that change the dynamic? Um, it hasn't. So to answer your question, so I, I always have to, there's this little, it only takes like a second and a half for me to translate eight figures into what is that actually? So that's 10 million plus. Um, <laughs> yeah, like maybe, it, maybe, maybe, that term all the time. maybe five or 10 million is like the number where sure, you're sure, like, sure. fuck uh, this, I don't I, need this I'd job. Say, uh, probably somewhere in the 20 to 30 range, if I had to guess, of people that have made that much, um, you know, over 50, maybe even 100 like millionaires in the seven figure range. Uh, but even when that was happening, right? Like, well, a couple of things. One is, it distorts it a little bit because as a private company, even though the valuation from the last round or whatever is X, uh, the shares are not liquid, right? So they're worth it, but they're worth it on paper. They can't go out and actually sell their shares. So that's kind of thing number one. Um, and so it doesn't, even if they wanted to, it doesn't, we can't really change behavior. You can't go off and um, you know, buy something with, with, uh, with your shares. So that's thing number one. But thing number two, it's that uh, we did have like this kind of esprit de corps, right? It wasn't really about the money. It was about winning. It was about kind of building something together. And I, um, I like to believe that it wasn't even really the idea that if we had taken that same early group of 20, 25 people and parachute them into some other company in some other industry, there's still software and SaaS, that we would have likely done reasonably well as well. I think it came down to the people had good chemistry. They were focused on the right thing. I think we, um, our early hiring policy was um, to hire kind of smart people that get shit done. That was kind of the the thing, right? We want people that have high, what we call high wattage. They were like measurably smart. If you had to get a, have them take an IQ test, we didn't do that, but uh, measurably smart. Uh, but there's lots of very, very smart people in the world, but they have this kind of predilection to action. Like they could not help, but like if they found a problem, they're going to go try and start solve it. They're going to jump in, um, you know, feet first and they're just going to do it or head first, whatever the, the phrase is. And that was enough. So we had, we made a deliberate decision not to hire what we call press release hires. Uh, press release hires when you hire someone and then you feel compelled to issue a press release, say, oh, HubSpot just hired the VP of sales from such and such company, whatever that is, a 30-year background in doing X. If we felt like we ever hired someone that was worthy of a press release, we did it wrong, right? That's not the kind of person we were looking for because they may have done amazing things at Google, Microsoft, Facebook, pick your company of choice, 
But the startup is such a different context and you're you're paying for these kind of specialized set of skills that may or may not be relevant. Uh, arbitrage is really, really hard. So we're uh, bigger on the identify diamonds in the rough, people that are going to be big, you know it. It's like a, you're buying a stock early um, versus going after the folks that already were press, uh, press release worthy. So yeah, anyway. I think I... Uh... That's been my skill. Sean, you've kind of seen my journey. I think my skill has been finding the diamond in the rough, diamonds in the rough. So we've had like, well, Sean and I kind of discovered one another. Uh, but then like there's Steph Smith, who's now at A16Z. Yeah. We had Trung, who's popular. We've had a bunch of people who went on and founded different companies. And what I've always looked for, like I, I purposely have looked for these diamond in the roughs because I, I was like, I can't afford you know to pay X, Y, and Z. So I got to hire this 24-year-old who I know will be a boss in like five or 10 years. By the and way, Sam, looked, Sam, it's not just that you can't afford them. I remember once the hustle got to the point where you could afford them, you were just kind of disgusted by the concept of somebody making that much money. I remember you were just like, how much do you, how much does this kid over here worth this like engineer at my office? And I'd be like, ah, I don't know, like whatever. He's 150, 170. You're like, 170? Oh my God. Like this is, uh, you know, what, if, if this person left, would the company fail? No, no, not at all. Well, and it you're was like, this is it, crazy. That was ten years, or that was a year a that few was years, ago. years ago. So like, yeah. So things have changed a little bit, uh, but also like your people would show up to work at like noon, and I'd be like, <laughs> "What the hell, man? This guy like just waltzed in, and like you're gonna," and he's like, "He arrived right when they're serving lunch." Uh, but uh, we've we've like discovered some cool people, and I always look for a couple things. The first thing is actually this is from Paul Graham. He goes, "I like to hire animals." Like people who like you're a little bit afraid of and they're like uh, just like freaks where they work a lot. I also work look for people who are like weird. So I always want like weird people who have like fairly extreme opinions. Even if I totally disagree with their opinions, I really like that someone's like well thought, well, uh, well researched and has a strong opinion on something. But I love like weirdos and eccentric people. And I have found that if you can at our startup at, at the hustle, we did a really good job of like accepting weirdos and letting them be odd. And like we like embraced it. And I always found that to be kind of like a uh, a uh, we used to say, you know, let your freak flag, uh, let your fly. freak flag fly. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we're like, you know, I don't I was like, we'll have we had all types of different people. We we, we had uh, just just every type of like person we worked at our company and, and they liked that we like embraced their odd. They're kind of like them being different. Yeah, we have something. So we have, you know, five kind of core values as part of our HubSpot culture. One of them is is uh, remarkability or being remarkable. And what we mean by that is there's something noteworthy they've done in their past or there's something quirky, something different, something that's an outlier about them. And it doesn't have to be specifically business or whatever even role that they're in. But there's like they're just kind of like off the, the kind of main beat um, and that we've done well with those kinds of people. We give them a home, kind of let them uh, do their thing and it tends to work out. Yeah. So, so Sam had weirdos and kind of like let, let your freak flag fly you have the um the uh, remarkability have you done something remarkable we had one at bebo that was the same as we, we used to say we hired degenerates it's like intentionally yeah. a, a word that's usually negative right like yeah. we hired degenerates and what we said we would always ask me and furcon we noticed this in each other we were like dude we've gone through these phases in our lives where we just got really obsessed with something that didn't have a clear payoff like it wasn't the popular thing to be obsessed with um, like it wasn't the like cookie cutter good thing to be obsessed with. Like it wasn't like grades yep. in school. It would be like, you know, for kind of got really into, you know, um, this video game. And he was like, yeah, I became like a top hundred ranked player of this game. And like it was a total like, you know, in one hand, I I knew it was like a waste of time, but like I couldn't help it. I just loved it and I obsessed with it. I became the best at it. And I just wanted to win like so badly. 
And at some point, I even stopped being about winning. It was just like I wanted to like get to like the next level and 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 keep going. And I had the, I had done the same thing with poker. He had done it with poker also. So we kind of identified these. Do you? It's like, hey, do you go through these periods of like three years of deep obsession around some get competitive like thing? And um, and then when you do, do you like really like try to study the game and figure out how to like what are the loopholes in the game? What are the rules of the game? You immerse yourself with other players in the game because like, well, cool. Our game now is just startups. And we would yep. try to find people who had some evidence of degeneracy. It's like, yeah, yep. you come in at noon because you stay up till four in the morning, like building that uh, SoundCloud player that works like TikTok for no reason because you're so annoyed that SoundCloud like is too slow in the way that they develop things. It's like other people would look at that as like, oh, you're not really reliable or very structured or you, you know, why did you work on that? That wasn't even like the task at hand. Whereas yep. we would see that and we'd be like, oh, all we need to do is just point this guy's degeneracy at the right direction and then we'll win. And that was like, our <laughs> yeah, mindset. That, that's, yeah. Well, I, I think of that as a uh, kind of borderline pathological obsession. Like that's like, once you attach yourself, whatever it happens to be right. And what our job is to kind of bring it just shy of pathological where it's like kind of harming themselves, <laughs> but it's like, you can't help yourself. You're going to like just dig in and, and whether it's video games or whatever it happens to be people that have, I don't call it a gene, but that have that trait, um, tend to work out well in startups because you're trying to attach yourself to a, a particular thing, a particular problem. Um, the other thing I'm just as aware of since we're on the topic of talent, I've got this little uh, mini framework, works at multiple levels of ab abstraction. They're like um, three kind of vectors of kind of measurement of people. One is that you have the creatives and these are people that start things. They have ideas. They have 180 mile, you know, ideas an hour kind of thing if you sit down in a room with them. Uh, then there are the, so they're the starters. Uh, then you have the completers. Those are the people that can make a list of like, here are the things that need to get done in order for us to ship a product or do whatever. Um, and often those folks are at odds. Like the, the idea folks are kind of really frustrated with the, the completers that are just like, oh, I'm just trying to check a box and make our, you know, it's like, yes, but I'm doing this thing and it's not good enough yet. And you have that tension. And that's what brings in the third person, which is the collaborator. And the collaborator is really good at communicating, is really good at bridging gaps across departments, across individual people and kind of pulling it all together. Um, and usually you're looking for someone that has at least some like a nine or a 10 on one of those dimensions, a seven or an eight, on another one, and usually very low on the third, right? It's like you can have what the are you? Super creative. I'm on the creative side. I'm like, yeah, um, for sure. Well, how have you, well, but how that doesn't make sense to me because you lead a $20 billion software company that and you've been doing it for 20 years, like, and as a CTO, so like how on earth do you pull that off? And it's public. It's publicly traded, which means you got to go through all the bullshit that like is the opposite of creativity. Yeah. How do you? How do? Yeah, how well, like, do you? Well, like one thing you shared last time, you, you talked about those little like kind of calculators or the little like kind of growth growth tools that you had built, which was just like, oh, I was just tinkering and I made this little like page load speed test site, and then or whatever. Yeah. I don't remember the exact examples, yeah. but you had built like three or four of those that drove like a substantial amount of traffic for HubSpot early on, and. Like even now with wordplay, like, you know, you're just you're still creating stuff even now that yeah, like, we were just talking. We were just talking. He's getting ready for the earnings call. And like that to me is the opposite of creativity. You know what I mean? That's like you're, you have so many you have such a narrow lane that you could stay within. That's like it seems so hard. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say this. Um, I have done everything in my uh, in my power to reduce the time I have to spend on things that I'm not good at. Right. Which is the uh, things that are kind of non-creative, not a part of that. So I don't have any direct reports, which is unheard of for a company that is, you know, for a founder that has uh, 7,000 people in the company, a lot of them on the kind of product and engineering team, which presumably, um, you know, the CTO would kind of help manage and lead. I, I don't do that. Um, and so 
and the only meetings I go to are where there's some creativity involved. I don't like to go to kind of status things and updates or whatever. It's like I can read an email as well as the next person. Um, so, but yeah, but there are things that are non-delegatable. That um, one of we should we should probably talk about. It's, it's on my list of things. Uh, so one is earnings calls. Um, another one is getting onto public stages, right? So for instance, we have an annual conference called Inbound that, you know, the last time it was in person, it had like 25,000 people in the live event, right? Like it's, um, it's big and I have to give the keynote every year and I've been doing it for 10 plus years now, which I hate and I'm bad at, uh, but that was one of those, because I'm founder, that was one of those non-delegatable things, right? I couldn't say, oh, well, we're going to have someone else go do that because, you know, in my role as founder, I have a certain kind of weight to me just by virtue of the title um, of being a founder versus um, someone else. So, Sean, listen to this. Listen to this Darmesh story. And Darmesh, you could fill in the blanks as we go because you could decide how much you want to reveal. But there has been a couple different times, maybe three different times, I've introduced Darmesh to a founder of a company who was raising money. And literally within five minutes, he replied and said, I looked at the deck. I'm in for blank amount. He, he, Dimash, you could reveal if you want to say some of the some of the times how much it was. But uh, and he replied with, "I'm in." Just so you know, though, I've got one rule, which is I always side with the founder, um, and I'm always on your team. But the downside of that is like I'm gonna make close to no time. You didn't say it this way, but is like I'm gonna make close to no time for you, or like you know, like I think you said it. Like I'm totally gonna be silent, a silent partner. I'm not gonna bother you, which means if you want to bother me, I probably you know, I'm not going to talk to you that much, but that's like the stipulations for taking my money. If you want to take it, great, do it. I've seen that happen three different times. And do you want to reveal how much it was or no? Uh, I, I don't recall, but um, I will say this. I've made roughly, I think, a little over 100 investments now across my angel investment. Um, I won't call it a career, but my activities and 80 to 90 percent. Um, I've never actually talked to the founders or ever met with them um, <laughs> over vast majority of my deals, I make the decision within 24 hours. Um, it's like, like, I don't have time to go dig into do due diligence on some industry or whatever. It's like, that's not the point. My point is not that there's only two reasons I do angel investing. Um, and it's, and none of, neither of them are to make a return. Um, one of them is around living vicariously through other entrepreneurs. I just like, I like that process. Um, and this is, you know, predates even starting HubSpot. And the other one, uh, quite immodestly is just bragging rights. Is to be able to say five, 10, 15 years from now, it's like, because no one cares like how much you invest. What I was like, oh yeah, I was in Okta back in the day. I was in Stack Overflow back in the day. I was like, you know, first money on this company, this company, this company. Uh, and that feels nice. It's uh, it's not such a kind of magnanimous giving back to the community. It's purely it's like, oh, it'd be cool to be able to have been part of you know these great founding teams that went off and built great companies. I really respect that you said that part because I thought you were going to say, like, um, you know, to support like the causes founders. I care about. Yeah. yeah, I just, you know, just to foster entrepreneurship <laughs> or like, you know, you know, use the D word, democratize something, something. And instead, you said a true thing that I, I think every angel investor feels is like, it's awesome to have a notch on your belt and be like, yeah, I, I, I either I saw that or I backed that. I bet on that and it, and it worked out. And it's awesome. It's an awesome feeling. It is a perk of the job and it's a real one. So uh, the fact that you said that to me shows me that you are a real one, Darmesh. I'm, I'm, I'm what I refer to myself as like a warm hearted, red blooded capitalist, right? So I have compassion. <laughs> it's not like that I don't like people. I'm not a sociopath, um, but I, I'm a capitalist. It's like, okay, well, for instance, I mean, this is going to sound completely immodest, but uh, we opened this door in the last episode. So I might as well walk through it now is 
So last episode, we talked about kind of putting a value on your time, whatever it happens to be. And that anything that falls below the line in terms of you can outsource a delegate or whatever for less than that, you don't do those things, right? You don't mow your lawn, whatever. If, um, and so I haven't, uh, I should recalibrate, but you know, my number personally, the one I use just because the math is easier is like $10,000 an hour. Like that's what I, if I were on the open market, I think I could, I could make that if that's well. Dude, I, I, I would have thought goal. higher. I would have thought higher. It is higher. Yeah, it's like it's, um, <laughs> well, what do you that think? That was the number. number it's, it's, it's higher. No, um, but I think, I, I think it would be like 50 or 100,000 an hour, maybe. Like, I mean, way higher. One could make the case, but I can make my point without having to make that particular case. Well, well, okay, uh, let me ask you a question yeah. to make it real. So uh, you buy something, you, you book a plane ticket, it, like whatever, it didn't work out or you, you deserve a refund, but you'd have to go chase it down. Do you just have somebody who you're like, this is my chief of staff, my EA, that like, I just say you do it or you're like, hey, it was $2,000, but it's below my hourly rate. I'm not going to do it. I just eat the loss and move on. I don't do it. Because even delegating then requires some follow-up, requires some explanation, and they're going to apologize because they could only get half back or it was only a credit. It's like, I don't, I don't care. I just honestly right. don't care. Um, and so, and back to the investment thing. So let's say, you know, my, when I started, my average investment rate was, we'll call it $100,000, uh, give or take a little bit. Um, it's grown considerably since then. But if I spent like five hours doing due diligence or having founder meetings or whatever, I basically doubled their valuation or halved my <laughs> investment amount, right? Because like, not only did I put cash in for which I'm going to get shares, but then I put another $50,000 or $100,000 worth of time in just in the due diligence, which is easier to kind of run up that bill. It makes no mathematical sense why people would do that, right? It's like, okay, um, do you really feel like you're going to... And the reason they rationalize, and this makes sense, is that if you really believe that as a result of spending that time on the margin, you're going to make better investment decisions, you're going to pick better companies, you're going to do these things, and maybe for the first hour or two, in an early stage startup, there's just not that much diligence to do, right? Like, what are you going to dig into? It's like, you right. like well, the idea or you don't, you like the founders or you don't, move on. Our software is the worst. Have you heard of HubSpot? See, most CRMs are a cobbled together mess, but HubSpot is easy to adopt and actually looks gorgeous. I think I love our new CRM. Our software is the best. HubSpot, grow better. Or the, the other part that's ob obvious but worth saying out loud just in case people are like, well, then why are you doing this podcast? Well, you also just do things you like. And th those are the things that you don't do. You don't put a, a dollar amount on because you enjoy them. And therefore, it is not a cost to you. It is like a, a, you know, a benefit to you. So, so yeah, if you love gardening, then you garden. No, you don't put a $10,000 an hour mark on it. Is that fair for you? That's how I think about it, at least. That is fair. And so what I solve for is I like to solve for... It's, kind of, it's a little bit of a squishy term. It's just raw impact. I like scale. So if you folks were a much smaller blog, let's just say, it's like, oh, I'm going to reach 50 people as a result of this. And I have ideas that I think are worth sharing. Um, and it was smaller. I'm like, and, and, and it's not like, oh, I don't get up out of bed in the morning unless there's at least, you know, 10,000 people. Yeah. Like, if, if this was Morning Bruce podcast, then I'm we're not, we're not to, doing like, it. Amplify, <laughs> amplify my time, right? To what little time I have left on the planet, what things that I know. Um, so I'm always looking for, uh, think, to do things at scale, like how so, can I find a way? Let let speaking of things at scale, let's talk about this thing because, like, on the surface, this thing that you recently did, like a year ago, is incredibly silly and not worth your time. But basically, I think a year and a half ago, Wordle is like a game that an online game is like a word game that that went viral. You built a thing called Wordplay. Is it Wordplay dot com? It's Wordplay dot com, right? Wordplay.com, yeah. Uh, by the way, you buy domain names. So you bought the hustle.com for us. You bought me uh, copy that.com. Thank you for that. Um, I forgot to say thank you in person. 
but uh, uh, so you buy like a lot of amazing domains, but you have wordplay.com. And did you tweet that it was getting 7 million users a week or three? What was the number? So the, I just went and checked with the numbers. Okay. So just to kind of place the timeline in, in frame. Uh, so November and December of last year, 2021 is when Wordle took off. And January is when it really um, kind of hit its, I think, close to its peak. Um, and that's roughly when the New York Times acquired Wordle. Um, and a couple things kind of, I mean, it, it was fine. I think it was um, you know, a great outcome for Josh Wordle. But there were things that were kind of bothering me that were limitations in the game. And I was an avid player of the game. Um, and now it's like, okay, well, the New York Times has bought it. There's no way that anything's going to happen for like years, <laughs> if ever. Uh, so that was kind of thing number one. Uh, thing number two, like it was, uh, it had been a while since I had launched like some simple free thing publicly, uh, hadn't gone through the process. And there were other things I wanted to learn. Um, it's like, oh, I want to learn more about Vercel and Next.js and TypeScript and things like that. So it's like, okay, well, this is a uh, excuse. And then that intersected with the third thing, which was like the dominant variable in the equation is my uh, son was taking a Python programming class. He's 11, right? Uh, he's going through this process. And for him, um, it's, it's still very abstract. He's learning programming. He enjoys everything involving technology and screens, but uh, it was abstract. So on a Saturday night, I said, okay, well, let me build something. Python happens to be my language. Um, build something so he can see, because he plays Wordle. He knows the game. Um, and so I started on a Saturday night with a deadline for Sunday that I'm going to launch something with him tomorrow. We're going to have Google Analytics on it. So we're going to launch it. I'm going to launch it by tweeting it. And so he, know, he knows what social media is, right? He's, um, you know, uh, so I'm like, oh, we've got this thing that didn't exist yesterday. I wrote the code over the course of last night in Python, the language that you're learning, and we're going to launch it. And now you can see users coming in, right? You can see that. And so now what I want him to have in his head is that when he, as through the course of his life, as he encounters problems that are solvable with software, which is a lot, like it's actually tactile for him. It's like, oh, I don't know. I don't have the skills right now to do what, you know, dad just did, but I know it's possible. I know it's possible because he did it in the span of 24 hours, right? So if I want to go off and build a video game, I want to go off and build some tool for my school. I want to build some social network for my, fr whatever it is, it feels like now it's, it's more approachable for him. He's got years to go before he'll get to that level. But um, anyway, so those three things sort of came together. And so we launched it uh, on that Sunday. This is, I think, in February or so, give or take. Um, and since then, it's had like 45 million games have been played. Uh, nine and a half million people have come through it. Um, any given moment in time right now, if I were to look at the Google Analytics, it'd be two, 3,000 people playing like right now, um, which... How, how did it get so know, much traffic? Where did the traffic come from? Well, it helps that I have a social media following, right? I've got a million followers on LinkedIn. I've got 300,000 on Twitter. So there's that. Uh, there yeah, are some viral that, elements. That, that's, that's a lot, but that's not... I, not I wouldn't have thought that. that yeah. Yeah, it's not enough for that, is it? How many users do you think got from that? Um, in the early like, days, like, all what of was them, it right? big? Was it big right off the bat? Like the first week, was it big? I know the first day, probably a bunch of people checked it out, but that, yeah. like I'm sure you posted it, and that was the big yeah. surge. So, what was like yeah. the first week, roughly? Do you remember? The first week was probably maybe fifty to hundred thousand. So it wasn't it wasn't a lot, but it was something. Uh, but then, it's like, once you kind of get into it, this is the you know, the kind of power of iteration is that, oh, well, one of the things that I found missing in the original Wordle was that it was a single player game. Like you played and you played once a day and that was it. Uh, so two big changes that we made in Wordplay. One was it was unlimited play. You didn't, you didn't have to play just once a day. And two, it, it allowed you to challenge your friends. So you could say, oh, I just played this word. I solved it in four turns. Here's my score. And send literally a simple link to anyone or a group. on, And this happens 
tens of thousands of times, right? Like someone will take a link <laughs> that they just play. They're really proud of their score. And then their family, they can post it to their WhatsApp group. Uh, they can post it there, you know, wherever they want and say, I invite you to like beat my score kind of thing. Um, and so that's the viral element. And so then as more people play, you can and I track that as you might have as a Google Analytics event and say, how many people, how many times are people clicking that share button and issuing challenges to other people? And so that once you can kind of get into something where there's a compounding effect on the user base. So as the user base grows. Um, and so now the thing I'm fighting, though, right, is that so that's happening. That's going well. But then the interest in Wordle uh, and related games is waning because everything right. has its kind of peak and its uh, and its ebb. Um, and so, but it's been an interesting exercise. And so, we, on the kind of learning path, one of the things I hadn't done in a while is like, okay, well, what's traffic actually worth? Let's say I had to make a living on this thing or make the company, quote unquote, or project profitable. So I put Google AdSense on it, which is the easiest thing to do, and discovered that like. If I weren't bothered by the fact that there would be two ads on the main game board page, if I were solving for monetization, it was like $90,000 a month uh, huh. in Google AdWords. Wow. Like, um, based on the traffic. Yeah. Wow. Um, I thought you were going to say that, way less. Uh, yeah, I thought he was going to say like five grand a month. But 90 grand a month, and you're, you only have, your only costs are hosting, right? Yeah. And, and my time, right? It's, and yeah. first of all, Sean, go to wordplay.com and then go to like the about page. His about page is incredibly well written. It's wonderful copywriting. It's wonderful. Uh, you've right. got a wonderful voice. It says, uh, I'll just read the first sentence, but it says, why would you do this? Or the better yet, why would I do this? That's a really good this. question. <laughs> My wife asked me the same question. And then you like go on to explain why. It just, it, you, you're, you're, you're quite a good writer for also being like this amazing engineer. Typically those things are I wonder the power writing course that Sean put on. You know that, right? It's like, I'm, right. I, I'm I do. getting around here with my The alumni. <laughs> <laughs> I like to say I taught Darmesh everything he knows. Even before he met me, I somehow <laughs> taught him all that good <laughs> stuff before he built HubSpot. What, uh, what do you, so this was making 90 grand a month, maybe, or about what do you, is this, your, it, it could, it's not right. There's no, I don't see it. I, ad turned, I turned ads off because that's sort of not the you. point. Uh, and people were asking me, he's like, Darmesh, why do you have ads on this thing? I'm like, to learn. And like, it's like, I've learned what I needed to learn so I can. Was, was tweeting and LinkedIn, posting this on LinkedIn, the only way you got users. What do you think this could sell for right now? And is the, is this the biggest side project you've ever created? Our, our buddy no, tried to um, buy it. From, Suli tried to buy it off you. Did he really? He he, he, tweet, <laughs> he tweeted out. He's like, "I'd like to buy this off you." I've you know I've built mobile games before. You know he was like semi serious at least. I don't know. I don't know if you talked to him or not, but <laughs> I did not. No. <laughs> what do you think you could sell? What do you think like if you cared? What do you think you could sell it for? Well, Two uh, or three million dollars, maybe. Right now, that um, let's say the ad revenue would go down to like fifty thousand or something like that because I haven't turned Google AdSense in a while. That's six hundred thousand dollars a year. Apply a. 5x multiple uh, so somewhere between two and ten million dollars would be my guess if i like if that's, that's so what funny. i was solving for so it's and um is this the it was was posting it on linkedin and twitter the only way that you got users or did you do some other weird hacks i had my blog uh had my it's like i'm a big believer in like you know what folks call like the flywheel there's all these little things that are attached to the flywheel right it's like oh well, LinkedIn helps a little bit, puts a little energy. Twitter does a little bit. And then I have my blog and the email goes out. And there's like things that I sort of do. Um, yeah, so it, it helps. But it's like the hardest part is that cold start problem. Like how do you get your first 100,000 people, 100 to 1,000 people? Um, and then it's a matter of like tracking the retention rate on those users. Do they come back? The other thing that's been interesting about WordPlay as far as the lesson learned um, is that, you know, when it started, the average time a user spent, uh, according to Google, was roughly four minutes um, on the game. Okay. Um, in the early weeks. 
And now that number is at 14 minutes is the average time a user spends, um, you know, across however many thousands of users come in a given day. So, right. What uh, and is this the biggest side project you've ever created? Uh, depends on how you measure it. Um, so technically, no, not in terms of just like raw traffic. Um, I've built graders and things like that before that uh, have done better. But what, what have you built that did what side project have you built outside of HubSpot that gets more traffic well, than it, Two or three uh, million people project. a month. I really did side projects. This is my first one um, that was like clearly because it was a game. Had it been anything other than a game, I would have rationalized some way to bring it into the HubSpot umbrella because I like to have like all my eggs in that basket. Uh, but just given the, the circumstances here, it didn't really make sense. Um, and even now, like I'm thinking about uh, doing a uh, kind of a marketing and sales related edition of wordplay, right? It's like, oh, the entire list of words or... Uh, do it based on MarTech companies. Like, okay, do you know the, the players in the space kind of thing? And then you can get sponsorships or whatever. Anyway, but um, yeah, yeah, Website Grader was the this kind of a project where it was like a free, I'm, I'm, I really like low friction things that people can come to the website. And this is why my son and I were chatting yesterday because we're, we're looking at Flutter, this new uh, development environment and language. Um, well, Dart's the language, but Flutter is the, uh, the app framework for building mobile apps across iOS and Android and things. It's, the, it's the, what the cool new kids are learning and he's like, no, why would I ever want to build a mobile app? That's like something people have to download and I have to get approval from you know, Apple to kind of post my, like I, I want to like just do it like immediately. He's got, uh, and he's right. It's like, okay, anyway. So that's the wordplay story. It's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've, um, and it's hard to know with these things, like, like where the road leads. Like uh, wordplay itself may or may not kind of connect back to other things, whatever, but the things I've learned through it I think will. It's like, okay, well, here's what it takes to build this kind of thing. It's like, okay, well, then I'm, yeah, I'm using it to uh, play around with community. It's like, okay, can I take the WordPlay user base? What are the things they care about and build a community around WordPlay you know, using one of the existing kind of community platforms um, and, and see if that's a thing, right? It's like, okay, if you could aggregate people with like interests, um, that in and of itself has value. And I want it to be something, you know, something that kind of self runs, but we'll see. If you were, uh, I'm going to ask, Darmesh, if Sam had built this as a side project and he was at the same point you're at right now, what would you like kind of advise him to do? If it was Sam's project and you were just kind of an outsider said, oh, that's really cool. You did that. And it sounds like you've kind of reached this point where you don't really have a direction of where it's going to go next. What would you kind of tell Sam? Um, decide what you want to do, which is, OK, do you want to like take this to the next level and you turn into a hundred million billion dollar business, uh, you know, spit it off or decide that it's just going to be a personal project? And just like my personal blog is, and I've made that decision. It's like, I'm not going to try and monetize and hire employees. I'm not going to do any of those things, right? It's going to be, and, and my son will continue to act as head of product um, because he's the one that tests the thing every morning. Um, and we play tournaments every evening. That's the big new feature that's coming out is the multi-round tournaments. Uh, by the way, in, in terms of like, I think half of what I know, Sean, I, I learned from you. The other half I learned from from MFM, right? It's like so. One of the things is around Chess.com, which you guys talked about, which I've been a, a member and player on for ten plus years. So I knew of the site, but then you think about wordplay is like, okay, well, this is Chess.com, but for word game enthusiasts versus chess enthusiasts, and then which like, is, what are all the as elements? A, as, as a reminder to people, Chess.com is like a huge business, like Massive, like yeah. multi billion dollar. Evaluation we we talked probably. about this when we talked about chess also, which was what other things are like chess. And we had said Sudoku and we had said, I think we had said like a Scrabble or whatever. Uh, yep. Word is Wordle, word games I, I are all, Yeah, I think they're almost as big, if not. I think it would be I wouldn't be shocked if it was bigger than chess. I wouldn't be shocked. I would I would be more shocked if it was like a tenth the size as the chess enthusiast audience. 
Um, yep. I would guess it's like in the range and there's very few games that are in the range. And so that alone makes it an interesting comp um, in, yep. in that sense. But so, so the lessons you draw from chess.com, right, which is a relatively straightforward is you have like a rating system, right? You have leaderboards and scores, you have challenges, you have social connections where you make your friends on chess.com. So you can invite, like, it's all the things, right? That there's, these are uh, very easily translatable into other games like wordplay, right? Um, right? So anyway, so we'll, can choose as far can as I give you one little feature I think would be cool because uh, leaderboards yeah. are always this problem in general where uh, like uh, leaderboards cool for the top 10 people and then for everybody else on earth it's like oh great I'm player number three thirty nine thousand fantastic right yeah. uh, and lot. so yeah. there's all these like if you I kind of studied this once I was like who solved this problem and there's really three models that work one is more like chess uh, and and games do this they, they create a rank system so it's, it's not your number 80,000 in the world, because that doesn't mean anything, but you go from bronze to silver to gold to platinum to master to grandmaster. And like yeah. you, you just compete to get your own level up within that to get to your next batch. And that's a karate belt, the karate belt method, let's call it. Then there's the next one, which is your social your rank matters when it's with people, you know, that are either your friends, your school, your city, something like that. So you can kind of hack a proximity based thing. And then yeah. the third one, which I think is somewhat interesting, which is it doesn't even matter what my rank is, but there's something cool. Like if I go to work play right now, I feel like I'm alone in this experience. I don't know that there's 3000 other people solving this right now. And yeah. also I don't know. I bet you there's like some celebrity that plays word play every day, right? Like I bet you like, I don't know, Mila Kunis plays this every day. And I think there's something really cool to like, sort of like a stars. They're just like us vibe of like, if I kind of knew that the, that X known people have solved it for today, that's just kind of yeah. interesting. And it's kind of like, you know, makes them more approachable. So I, I almost wonder if there was like a little feature like that, where if you're a blue check tech yeah. person, you could kind of like off in and be like, I either solved it or failed today. And you could just have yeah. that as a little board. Uh, anyways, those are my three random feature well, ideas. That's for a good you. idea. The one of the things, and I don't, it's not surfaced on the, on the, probably this is a really good idea, but uh, one of the things I do have is in the comment, there's, a, there's commentary. So as you're playing, the software will kind of give you little kind of sometimes snarky, sometimes fun messages, sometimes data. It's like, oh, you're one of the uh, few people that's ever guessed this particular word. That's not a very common word to use. Congrats. Good for you. Or right. this is the thousandth time you've used this particular word, uh, you know, points for consistency. Um, so there's this kind of running commentary, but I like that idea of like just kind of front loading. It's like, here's a number of people that have solved this game. And I, I give you stats at the end of the game. It's like, right. Oh, only 14% of the people or players solve this particular word. And it took them on average seven point, I mean, uh, 4.7 guesses. So, yeah. Can I throw two more at you? Uh, yep. This is now my, my future brainstorm for you. Uh, if you ever there's, played Candy there's Crush, nothing more, there's nothing more than like an entrepreneur. There's nothing more than like a person who has no stake saying, Hey, have you thought of, have you thought about, have you thought about this? <laughs> Why haven't you done also, this yet? There's nothing less entertaining on a podcast than me telling you features for wordplay, but fuck it. It's just our podcast. We can do what we want. <laughs> if you ever played Candy Crush, they do this thing, which was they make they uh, so stakes, stakes matter a lot in stories or any kind of like adventure. Um, yeah. and so like, you know, the, if you open up a pack of warheads and if you see a black one, oh, that's the really crazy one. Yeah. Uh, Candy Crush does this in their games where if you start a level, it says this is nightmarishly hard or this is a, you know, medium hard or whatever. So I'd like to see that in the wordplay when I come into every day, I'd like to know if this is a nightmarishly hard puzzle or if this is just okay. It gets me amped yeah. up for my play. Yeah. That's uh, a really good idea. Um, and then combining that with your tiering idea and then we can uh, move on. But so imagine we had a tiering mechanism that you can go from bronze to silver to whatever to ninja level. Um, you know, right now, when you start the game, you get a random word that and other people get random words as well. And there's a daily word um, that everybody plays together. But imagine that like as you move up the rank, it gets harder. It's like now you're a level that 
few have achieved, let alone solved, right? It's like no one even right. gets here. You're here. Um, and then you know, do things for streaks. It's like, okay, well, you're the first person to have solved like 50 games in a row at this tier or something like that. I think that'd be fun. So well, one last one I think you'll like, which is um, you are a fan of crypto. And I think you would, if you like the crypto ethos, and I think if you could advance the cause of crypto, that would be like a win for you personally. Um, so we gave out this milk money grant, this like milk for the milk road. We gave out like a bunch of money to people just to build whatever they want. And one guy, this guy, Dave, he built this thing that was like a Wordle game, but it was with crypto, which was just you play Wordle as is. But if you solve it, you could win like one Matic, like a tiny amount. Or like then he was like playing with different ideas. He's like, oh, there's actually a hundred Matic jackpot for the day. And like only winners are eligible for the jackpot. You might you might get it or you might not. And so you got a bunch of people connecting a wallet. So I think what you could do is you could actually just add that into Wordplay, which is, by the way, there is a hundred dollar a day prize paid out in Matic or, or whatever. Um, all you got to do is create a little wallet here and like you might win. And so I think a yep. bunch of your avid players would create a crypto wallet where they might not otherwise. So you'll onboard new people yep. into the world of crypto. You could create a dead, simple meta, either funnel them to MetaMask or create a dead, simple crypto yep. wallet that will become yep. like a, the play to earn a uh, crypto wallet, you know, for the future. Anyways, that's, uh, so, I will, I, I will I now stop talking. Also about a good play. idea. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I just, so I actually added the ability to connect your, um, connect your diesel wallet and your Ethereum wallet um, to Wordplay. Um, and my idea at the time was instead of turning ads off, I'm going to make that the pot. And so as ad revenue accumulates until the next payout, whatever it happens to be, and then it's like, oh, the top 10 winners are going to get this distribution and let's right. start over again. So not to make money, but uh, we'll have money coming in through AdSense and then we'll kind of... Right, a sustainable play-to-earn game. That's awesome. Yeah, yes, that would exactly. be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, let so. me, uh, Sean, this is... Uh, an interesting topic, but I understand there's like laws and SEC stuff around what you can and cannot say, Darmesh, just tell me if like you can't. But basically, I think it was in late May, I'm looking at now, in like May 25th or something like that. Um, Sean, I don't know if you saw this, but like there was headlines that said like Darmesh Shah, uh, CTO, co-founder of HubSpot, buys HubSpot shares. And I think it was like, was it $10 million? It was it was a pretty substantial amount. It was, it was over, over three forgot the exact amount is but it, it was millions of dollars and then suddenly like uh, the stock like the next day like went up because it was like oh man Darmat like this insider bought it he he uh, like he, he has faith uh, in the company that was a pretty that, that's a pretty cool move when you're doing something like that what is your thinking like are you thinking like um like is it part of you like i just want to prove to the world that i'm brave is it part of you like oh no this is just undervalued like they they're they're foolish uh, it's, I mean, like what, what's your, what's your motivation there? Um, it's exactly what you said, which is, uh, I just thought the company was undervalued given the, the long-term potential. And I've done this before. I did it a couple of years ago, um, and about a bunch of shares, I think even more at that time, um, like at $125 a share, right? I'm like, okay, well, and this is when HubSpot stock had dipped over the ensuing, um, I mean, the prior, prior two or three months. I'm like, I understand the market's more like it's, but this doesn't make any sense. Like it, you know, HubSpot stock to me was worth more than um, at the time, $125. Um, turns out I was right. Um, and so it's, it's a similar thing. It's like, an, and it does signal belief in the company, right? It's, but it's what I, it's what I believe. And there are regulations around it. And, you know, people ask like, oh, well, why did you, you know, buy at that time? And as it turns out, it was the exact window of time that I had to wait a certain period since my last transaction um, to when I could buy. And the day that I was eligible to buy, I bought. And it's like, okay, oh, the price is low enough. I still have conviction that um, over the long term. Are you also buying with money that 
like where did this three million dollars come from let's say isn't that just stock you previously sold that you now are buying or like, it's not like you have some yes, other yes. huge side <laughs> income exactly stream. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes 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 or can you can you take a loan against your hubspot shares yep. to buy more there, like there's that, like a hundred things you cannot do that's one of them <laughs> so, uh, yeah. wow no i think uh i saw that the other day and uh you you've done you've made a few decisions like every once in a while you do something and i'm like oh this guy is nutty in a cool way and that's not exactly nutty but it's like a pretty bold move i i thought it was a pretty cool move and i and i saw that and i was wondering what what was going through your head when you did that because what's the psychology like when uh i don't know hubspot stocks like i'm just rounding i think it's down like 40 maybe 50 percent something like that from the all-time high like during the 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 last kind of the, the, the peak of the peak last year or whatever um and so you know we come on here sometimes and i'll be like uh all right, guys, you know, you know, Sam will be like, dude, how are you? And uh, you lost a bunch of money today. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I lost like a million dollars today. And like, you know, ETH, ETH is down and I'm I'm down a million dollars. I'll share my psychology of like dealing with this, this uh, travesty of a loss or whatever. And I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. be like, yeah, you know, here's how I think about it. You play that game at like a thousand X higher stakes where like, you know, or more like he, he swings- lost 500 million. Yeah, exactly. I'm losing five hundred thousand. You're losing five hundred million or whatever. You know, something crazy like that. What's What's yep. your psychology like? Uh, I don't know. Like, I think you know what question I'm trying to ask, even though I, I yeah. don't have the words. How does it feel to lose half a billion dollars? Is what you're asking me? Or, yeah. Like, and how do you deal with that? And like, yeah, go go. For is it. that how much you lost? You think? It's more than that, but yeah. Uh, who's counting? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, this podcast is more fun when we were talking about wordplay. <laughs> <laughs> actually fine like it, I'm, I'm not really and, and i'm not just saying this uh, but, but it's true it does not phase me like one bit because the reality is um it does not change my life one iota right other than like okay well it impacts you know hubspot employees and children i get that but in terms of me individually like nothing changes right like i wasn't off planning to buy small small islands or take over governments or something like that um or by Twitter, right? I was not, I didn't have any of those kinds of plans. And so absent those kinds of plans, um, like I feel sorry for the nonprofits that I would have invested in, but you know, uh, my wife continues to invest. There's, you know, we have uh, plans to do the philanthropy we want to do. And so it's like, okay, well, I still will wake up every day then do the same things I did before. And I'll look at the wordplay things and respond to user emails or looks like, and do my HubSpot stuff. It's like, okay, They're like what's so really you don't even so have you, you don't even have the self-talk in your head where you kind of need to like, because for me, when it happens, I'm like, uh, you know, I have an instant reaction as I go look at a chart or a price or whatever. And then I give myself a little self-talk and I'm good. Like it lasts 17 seconds, but I do have those 17 seconds. It sounds like you don't even have those 17 seconds because you're like, well, I've already been over this before in my head at some point in my let, life. And let I just alone, decided it doesn't matter. Let alone the self-talk. The self-talk is one thing, let alone like that. But and then there's also this other thing that you and I have, Sean, which is like it if the markets are shit for a year or two, like we will change our day-to-day actions. Like, you know, we may not buy X, Y, and Z or like we might, you know, we're not to that point where it's like, major, it doesn't matter. Major cutbacks at the Puri household right now. Major cutbacks. Yeah. It's like, we'll, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll maybe change behavior, but you don't way, even right? change. I laid I'm off my off, son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I change in the other direction, right? So as the market has dipped, um, my kind of average check size has actually gone up. I've made bigger bets and things because I think valuations are starting to adjust, um, you know, slowly. So I think there are better deals now, um, good entrepreneurs starting companies. Um, so, but overall, like the psychology of it has just, 
just does not like have any impact. And like over the long term, you know, um, I didn't make this up, but I, uh, is is that the you know the valuation of a company, which is like the market price, um, will oscillate around the value, right? And value is like the revenues you have, the products that you build, and what are you actually doing um, you know, for your customers. And so that. Mm. You know, if our revenues had dropped off, you know, before something, if something like that had happened, that'd be a different story. But it's like, okay, well, that hasn't changed. We are the same business today, if not better than we were three months ago, six months ago. Um, and the valuation over time will kind of self-correct. So one of the things I like about the market um, is that I think and, things will kind of wash out and we'll see. Yeah. And a lot of HubSpot's customers are kind of like, you know, medium-sized, let's say, businesses. Um so do you like, do you spend much energy being like, okay, where is the economy going? What's going to happen to my customers, which will have some knock on effect of like, what's going to happen to our business. Do you care or spend energy there? Cause I find myself for the reason I ask, cause I find myself sometimes going down these rabbit holes of like, okay, what do I think is going to happen? Then at part of me is like, well, does any of that really matter or affect me? Or, you know, is this energy useful or is this just sort of nervous energy that I'm wasting thinking about this stuff? Do you and is HubSpot's, is HubSpot's customer base even, how many customers does HubSpot have? Like 130,000? Like, yeah, yeah the, over that, yeah. Yeah, and when I, I think when I sold, it was 100,000 or just crossed 100,000. In the grand yeah. scheme of things, the one of the reasons I sold, I'm like, well, 100,000 customers, that's like kind of a lot, but that's not that much. Uh, I was like, the, the market's way bigger than 100,000 people who would want to buy this. And so is, is, yeah. the, is 100,000 or 150,000, whatever it is, is that number even big enough? to have the needle move significantly when the economy is shit? Uh, on, a, on a percentage basis, like it's, um, I'll answer it this way. So I'll answer the first question, then we'll kind of move to the second one, which is, you know, do I spend time thinking about this? Do I do anything about it? And the answer is yes. Um, at HubSpot, we will try to model out. Here's, here's the impact we think it could have on our business. Uh, but the, the, and there's two sides to it. There's the kind of defensive side of it. It's like we want to make sure um, that, we have enough cash in the bank to weather the storm. We don't know how long the storm's going to last, and we have models for how, um, you know, how long it's going to last, how deep it's going to be, those kinds of things uh, as far as impact. But then the other part, which is to me much more exciting, which is okay, given what we know, what can we do to capitalize um, on this crisis? Right, this is what's happening right now. What can we do to make this net positive for HubSpot? And we had something similar happen in 2008. At the last uh, HubSpot was much earlier. So things uh, we did, even when the pandemic started, one of the things we did is like, oh. There's lots of uncertainty. Businesses are struggling. Everyone's kind of batting down the hatches. And so we said, okay, we're going to give even more value. We're going to, um, for our partners, we're going to front them the cash for the you know, revenue we know is coming over time because cash is, a, is an issue and we had a bunch of cash in the balance. So we did things that kind of made us stronger and helped our customers. And, um, and so we're looking for those same kinds of opportunities. I was like, okay, now that everyone's kind of looking at the P&L and looking at all their line items or whatever, is can we benefit from this? Because HubSpot, in some ways, it's counter-cyclical. It's like, okay, well, instead of buying the big incumbent and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe now people that might not have considered HubSpot a year ago would now consider it because they're more value-conscious now than they were historically. Um, yeah, so. When you were starting the company, so, like, there's a, there, you know, if you just look at the math, there's a world where HubSpot in the next five or ten or who knows how long can be worth, like, $100 billion, which is, you know, one of the biggest top 200 or something companies in the world. When you were starting the company, did you have a number in your head where you're like, man, I think this, I think this can make $100 million a year, or I think this might be a billion-dollar company, or was it as big as, man, I think this could be worth tens of billions? We didn't have a specific number in our head, but we had, um, I'll say comparables for lack of a better term, which is, okay, there are successful software companies 
that have done similar or related things, either they're in the same market or um, in the same um, target customer base that had achieved it. It's like, okay, well, and this is what we told to VCs at our pitch. We're like, okay, we're not, we think at the time we were just in marketing software. So here, here was, I'll give you the first 30 seconds of the pitch is that in the history of software, no one has ever really built a 10 plus billion dollar household name, global brand marketing software company had never been done. Omniture was the greatest one at the time with a billion and a half dollar um, you know, price tag at the time. And we're like, and the reason people, you know, companies have not been built uh, in the marketing tech space is because marketing is an arts and craftsy kind of discipline. It's about the shade of your logo and you're outsourcing a bunch of creative stuff or whatever, but it's not the kind of problem software solves. And our belief was that marketing was increasingly turning into the kind of thing software does solve. Lots of data coming in. You're trying to make decisions around all this stuff. It looks exactly like an industry that software can help with. And so our thesis was that someday someone will build a hundred, two hundred, five hundred billion dollar software company that's doing the thing we're trying to do. And we said it might as well be us. We're relatively nice people, and we're uh, and we're kind of committed to this and seeing it through. So, you know, do we think the odds were relatively high that we would pull it off? No. Uh, but did we think there was an opportunity to do the kind of thing that uh, you're talking about? Yeah, I'd like to. Others had done it. We were not putting someone on Mars, right? That was not. Um, it's like okay, well, people have done this before, and this is just a different time. And maybe now the time is right for a new company to do something that. You know, has been done, but uh, but better. This goes uh, a little bit to your Pixar um, kind of vision, Sean. It's like, okay, well, you know, people sometimes give us like, okay, well, you, you know, what are you going to do that's different? And why is this, you know, what is, does the world need more? The answer is the world does need more Pixars. And so, you know, saying to you like, oh, you don't really need to do that is like telling Elon Musk, does the world really need another car company? And like they kind of downplay the fact that it's like, yeah, it's got four wheels and it gets you from point A to point B, <laughs> but it's all like, there's just one interesting element about it that makes it completely different, right? It's like, it's the same thing. Like most ideas that have been super successful are not complete new from whole cloth cut, right? They're like, they're, and I don't like the cliche of building on the shoulders of giants, but it's like, like just about everything that's ever been done is derivative to some degree. It's just based on your level of abstraction, how many steps back you're willing to go. So it's like, okay, yeah, I can see <laughs> someone building something massive here. It's like, I, I'll, I'll get off my rant. It's like, so we had Facebook did awesomely well. Then Twitter comes along and people said, oh, well, that's just Facebook where you have shorter messages or something like that. It's like Facebook with constraints. With less. And then uh, yeah. Instagram comes <laughs> along. It's like, well, you can post photos on Facebook. Why would anyone ever use Instagram? That's like Facebook with all the other cool things that I like as well, right? No messenger, not, none of that stuff. And then TikTok comes along. It's like, well, that's just kind of videos that you can do on Facebook. You can do on Instagram. You can do on Twitter. But it's this. It's like just different enough in a compelling enough way where... And it's still a video, social net, social based video app and you know, lit the world on fire, right? It's like, so even something as old as video or as photos is still not over. It's just not over. It's just part of the kind of the human condition right now. Anyway, it's, uh, if, if you I just was, said I, I'm with you, uh, Sean. If you go off and want to do another Pixar, and if you're ever looking for an investor that will make a decision 24 hours, I'm your guy. <laughs> what was that tweet about, Sean? I, that was out of left field. What, do, what are you saying? Uh, okay, so... I'll I, all my tweets are out of left field. So that's just Twitter. That's what Twitter's supposed to be, right? Just a bunch of left field shit that all gets put in a feed. Um, I was watching, I don't know what I was watching. I think my nieces were over and they were watching Toy Story. And I was like, Toy Story is amazing. Pixar is amazing. And I was like, why is it like, I was like, I want to do something amazing. This is literally how my brain works. It's like, oh, that looks so awesome. That's like an awesome end output. I would be so proud if I had made something like that. I bet I could, right? Like it's this combination of like, um, seeing something that is really appealing and then having the delusional belief that like, of course I could do it if I just tried. And 
So I just thought it to myself. I was like, you know, that would be a fun company to build if you could just make great stories, great movies um, and put them out there into the world. Like that would be so fun as a thing. If that's like the thing you did and like I mean, hundreds of millions of people, not just like use your product. There's one thing to use your product. It's nothing to like love it, grow up on it and have like, you know, like this extreme, like nostalgic emotion around, around like these movies, right? Like if, if I see, you know, for everybody, it's a little bit different, but for me, it's like, I don't know, home alone and mighty ducks. And then, you know, lion King, there's like the, a couple of movies that just like, uh, they meant a lot at the time and they still mean a lot, even though I don't interact with them. Um, so I have to, because otherwise I'm going to forget. There's one thing uh, I need to say on, on this particular episode, because otherwise it'll uh, keep me up at night. So I have like a, a handful of like frameworks and things I think about the uh, way I think about the world. And this ties back to uh, Sean's uh, next trillion dollar company thing, uh, Pixar, which I think it can be, by the way, Sean, just so you know. OK, so imagine let's take a step back. I'm on a whiteboard and the whiteboard, it's the universe of all possible people everyone on the planet, and you draw a circle with one of your skills. So in Sean's case, let's say we put copywriting as one of the skills that he's in the top 1% or top 5%, whatever number you want to associate with it. And so that's the circle. It's like, okay, X number of people are at Sean's level um, or better and at copywriting. Awesome. Let's say we draw another circle that's, um, we'll call it crypto. Knowledge is just how crypto works. And that's a group of people. Awesome. Um, rarer skill because it's newer. There's fewer people that know how to do that versus copywriting. We can accept that. It'll be a smaller circle. Uh, what happens though is if you intersect those two circles and turn into a Venn diagram, the number of people that know copywriting really well and also know crypto really well is a hundred times smaller than either of those circles combined, right? And this is, we see the same effect in like in standardized tests. If you took the SAT or the GRE or the GMAT, there are people that are really good at English portion of the test. There are people that are really good at the math portion of the test. But the ones that score really, really well are the ones that are good at both. They don't have to be the best at both because that's the thing that's actually rare is the combination of the English and the quant. Same thing here. So now imagine. So this is what I call it, the trillion dollar Venn diagram of success, right? Uh, I just made that up. But so you draw those circles of your skills and say, OK, well, I am now not like one in a million. I'm one in a billion, right? Or one in five billion, whatever that is. And if you can convert that into some kind of monetizable business thing or whatever, that's when magic sort of happens. So, so that's kind of thing number one is right. like, what's your thing? What are your skills? Um, and what drives the value? Like how much value will that intersection create is two things. One is how rare is that intersection? Whether it's two circles or three circles or whatever, how rare is it? And then the other one is how, um, how much does it kind of reinforce the other skills that you already have? So for instance, I'm a software developer. That's one of my, that's my core skill. I've been programming for like 30 years now, that's my thing deep down inside my core. If I combine that with, I'm going to go off and which I could never do, uh, become an Olympic level swimmer, let's say. Like also very rare. The intersection of that is like, okay, well, the opportunity that it reveals because the two things are so unrelated. It's like, I don't know how I would take my ability to build a web app and intersect it with my, like, yeah, there's some things I could do, but I don't know if that would be that huge. But uh, software development is applicable to lots of, if I was going to be an academic researcher, if I was going to go into music, if I was like other things, um, there's a lot more overlap to the degree that it's like those two, they, they reinforce each other. So software helps me do this and that helps me do this. And this is one of the reasons. Uh, so my advice here was as you're picking skills to acquire, acquire skills that are both rare, but also reinforce things that you're already exceptional at um, that, that will kind of drive that kind of that rarity. And, and that's what drives, uh, drives the overall value, uh, which kind of brings me to is like, and so when I think of things that I want to learn, it's like, okay, well, this is why I got into copy. It's like, if I can, and copywriting is another form of 
this is communicating at scale is what copywriting is, right? right? Like it's uh, in, in usually textual form. It's like, okay, well, I don't know that many software engineers that can copyright really well. I, I literally, like, other than that, have not started companies, right? It's like I, they don't exist. But um, very rarely do you get like really, really good um, engineers that went off and read six books on copywriting and mm-hmm. took Sean's class. That that's not a common. Wait, you, um, you you are you are a good writing a writer before you got into this? No, no, oh, no. Wow. I mean, your writing is great. And by the way, Sean, let's what's you got to pimp it out. Maven.com slash power writing, or just go to maven.com and you see it. Yeah, yeah. Just go maven.com. M-A-V-E-N dot com. I'm on the homepage. Starts in two weeks. All right. So the the uh, what you said is great. I would add one more circle well, to, your, to that. To your Pixar thing, by the way, the reason you might pull it off is because you have a very weird and unique and related level of skill. So yes, there are people that are better, maybe better creatives, better animators, better entertainment, whatever. But they don't know crypto. And maybe that's the thing that unlocks the next trillion dollar company is entertainment intersected with crypto. It's the Netflix for the blockchain, whatever it is, right? Something like that where two things combined that never had been put together in that way before. Um, anyway. right. the, the, the other circle that I would add that I think people underestimated. So I tweeted this out. Right? So people, I didn't explain what the tweet is. The tweet was, I said, the next company I build is going to be like a new, new age Pixar, uh, like the, like the next Pixar. And um, I think I'll, I, I think I would work on that project for 30 plus, like 30, 30 plus years. I I'd, I'd just keep going with that company. I wouldn't be trying to sell it or flip it or get out of it or whatever. Um, so that was the tweet. And then a bunch of people basically had two reactions. One reaction was awesome. Like, where can I sign up? How do I work for this company? That's that sounds awesome. I love Pixar. You could do it. And those are like fans of MFM type of thing or people who themselves had been thinking, God, that would be awesome to create another like Pixar type of company, you know, because I love Pixar. Then there's the other half of people that were like, what makes you think you could do this? Um, you know, like, you know, how hard it is to make a movie. You know how expensive it is. You know how how unique, you know, Steve Jobs and, you know, whatever, uh, Lasseter and Catmull, like how, how rare those talents were when they came together. That's a once in a generation company. And then other people were like, um, one guy had this amazing burn. He was like, uh, check, uh, aqua hire, like a uh, green check mark, aqua hired power writing co- like course podcast next Pixar. And I was like, oh, nice. That's, that's pretty solid, actually. Um, and so, you know, a bunch of people were sort of all in the same bucket of like, this is so hard. This won't work. What you, you can't do it. That's some version of that. And so the third circle, one is like, I'm really great at X. I'm really great at Y. The third is just, I have the courage to go do a thing. And like um, Tim Ferriss once told this story. He goes, I went to a, a business school class, a Harvard business school class. I gave this talk. At the end of the talk, I go, oh, by the way, guys, I'm doing this challenge um, uh, only for you guys, you know, whatever. Uh, I want to get in touch with either Bill Clinton Jennifer Lopez or, you know, some sports person, you know, Michael Jordan or whatever. Um, if anybody here can connect me over email with them, like, you know, just re- reach out to them. And if you get a hold of them, connect me over email. I will buy you two round the world plane tickets, um, you know, for you could fly business class for a year uh, around the world anywhere on my dime. All right, guys, thank you very much. And he told that to one class. And um, he's like, you know, I, I, you have 30 days to complete this challenge. <laughs> and then. um I think it, I forgot what it was. It was like he did it to two classes, but he gave a slightly different message in each. The first one, he just just said that 30 days go by. Nobody did it. Uh, sorry. Nobody completed the challenge. He's like, ah, oh, what happened? You know, turns out nobody even tried the challenge. The perceived difficulty was so high that nobody did it. So in the next one, he told that story. And I think he added a twist, which was whoever gets the closest to it 
uh, wins. Mm. And all of a sudden, like everybody tries. And in fact, I think somebody did get in touch and actually successfully completed the challenge. And he was like, uh, he had this principle, which was sort of like, you know, everybody wants to fish where everybody else is fishing because they think it's so easy to catch fish there. He's like, in actuality, often it's easy to just go go catch a fish where the fish actually are. And you you don't have to base it on how how many people, how many other people you think have tried something or how you know, what the perceived difficulty is. And in fact, sometimes the bigger you go, the easier something can be because nobody else is even trying to do it. And so yeah. I would say like, you know, this Pixar thing, who knows if I'm going to go do this or something else. I tweet things just almost to, to my prototype. It's like, let me say this out loud. Let me see how that yeah. feels. If I sleep yeah. and to wake up tomorrow, do I want to tweet five more ideas about that? Or am I over it? It was just a passing fleeting moment. Um, yeah. But, but the, the core ingredient I think most people lack is courage to actually go and do the thing. And I think that's the, the, the people put way more emphasis on what skill am I top 1% in? They kind of, they, they undercredit themselves. One, one skill you could just have for free. You just got to go. It's like at the sand, the, the, yep. the deli at the gro- at the grocery store, go pull the number is, yeah, yep. I, I have the courage to actually go do it. Like, you know, I'm, I will go do pull the trigger on this thing and not wait for other people to kind of like yeah. reinforce that it's a good idea to me. Yeah. And this is, um, I could not agree more. Um, and so, and I think people conflate sometimes skill versus talent, and they believe they don't have the talent for entrepreneurship or for design, for programming, whatever it is. Uh, in my mind, uh, so skill is something that's learnable. That's an easy definition. Uh, talent is the rate at which you could acquire a particular skill. So if you have a talent for music, that means you will acquire musical skills faster than someone that doesn't have a talent for music. It doesn't mean that someone that doesn't have a talent for music can't learn it. So they may have a ceiling as far as how far they can go. Fine, I get that. Uh, but this doesn't mean they can't do it. And so one of the big lessons kind of in my, in my life, in my professional career is that most things are actually skills, not talent. Mm. Mostly like, it's like, you can start with zero. Like I was, I would have been voted least likely to ever start a company in my entire like generations of family. Right. Like that's not uh, a talent I ever had. Like uh, when I, um, until I went off and did it, it's like public speaking was not something it's like, Oh, that that's a skill. And you, and then um, there's this thing from software engineering. I think it's, it's worth sharing. Uh, there, I think some of the best ideas are when you take stuff from other industries and pull them into this thing and apply it here in a weird way. But in software engineering, there's this uh, thing called functional decomposition, which is take a problem, be able to articulate well. So a function that has a set of inputs and a, an output and what it's supposed to do. And really all software problems are being able to take like, the highest order function is, uh, let's say you want to um, grade a possible uh, investment based only on the website. It's like, oh, I'm going to give you the domain and you're going to give me a score from zero to hundred as to how good this is. Okay, well, that function is easy to define. It's like domain goes in, score from zero to 100 comes out. What other functions does that function need in order to pull that off? It's like, okay, I want a function that looks at the domain and looks at the level of SEO they have. That's one layer down. The person that's writing the SEO function goes down level. It's like, I'm going to look at the on-page SEO and see how good they're doing at meta tags and H1 titles. And I'm going to look at the off-page SEO and their link acquisition, that kind of stuff. That's, it's like, so if you roll it all down and you go down far enough, individual functions at the atomic level are so simple as to be trivial. What matters is the fact that you were able to abstract it down to that simple thing, right? And so most things uh, can be broken down that way. So, so if you look at, oh, I want to become someone that can give a talk in front of 25,000 people on a stage, um, that seems like an insurmountable task for someone like me that's never done that. Uh, and that's not my, not, my, not my thing. It's like, oh, well, what does that involve? Number one, you have to have kind of overcome. I didn't have like stage fright, I had severe stage anxiety, right? Stage, stage fright is like, oh, there's a ship that's going to come down from space and just suck you up because you, you were so bad. And stage anxiety is like, 
man, I wish a spaceship would come down and suck me off the stage right now. I want to get off. Um, so there's that. Like, don't, you know, don't pass out on stage. And then there's the, oh, uh, you learn about storytelling. You learn about writing. You learn about slide design. You learn about humor. And I did all those things, right? Read books, took classes on all those components of public speaking. And in aggregate, I'm okay now, right? Like, I, I can do that. And you, then again, then it's practice. And you do it over time. So anyway, my point here is uh, startups, whatever skill in startups are a skill, Figure out what set of skills you need to acquire. Some you'll be good at acquiring because you have the talent. The other one, you're just going to have to grind it out more than others may. But it's doable. It's a doable thing. One question that I have. If I can do it, anyone can do it. That's my point. I love that. So Sean Sean kind of added this thing to your your Venn diagram of like just people brave enough to get started. And would you add another thing like when with the hustle we sold in year four or five and I'm I don't regret it. I'm very happy with that. But I actually like we lo- I looked at the numbers this year and I was like, oh, wow, we would have made like maybe like it's it, it was close to the point where like you could have potentially next year made more revenue that year than all the revenues uh, combined. Um, and I'm like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. Like I again, I'm happy with it, but like real value, like I guess for me, I was like real value was created in year like five, six, seven, eight. Of course, you probably could say like when you're in year five, six, seven, eight, you're like, whoa, wow, it's really created in 10, 11, 12. But um, yeah. uh, do you think that um, what portion of HubSpot and your success has been, well, I'm just really, I'm just willing to shut up and focus on this for 20 years as opposed to uh, you actually being amazing or good at product and marketing and things like that? Um, yeah, here's how I think about it. I think the outcome is a combination of like dreaming really big and like iterating really small and having tight feedback, feedback loops. So the dream really big is you have to have something that can someday translate. And it doesn't have to be as clear of vision as, as uh, you know, Sean has kind of laid out as far as, oh, it's going to be um, Pixar for the new generation. Um, but you have to kind of have start with something roughly big in mind, um, at least at some level. But then it really comes down to the, the iteration, right? It's, um, I think, the, and others have demonstrated this through data, is that the quality of the output is almost, I won't say always, but frequently a function of the number of iterations, not the quality of the... You know, the people, for instance, so one of the common examples that's thrown out is, uh, and I've heard it with a pottery class or a photography class, but it's like, oh, one set of students divided class in half. Uh, let's say it's a photography class. Uh, one set of students is like, okay, every day you have to submit a photo for the next 30 days while this class is running. Uh, the other one is like at the end of the 30 days, you're going to submit your best photo. And then your grade is going to be based on the quality of that best mm-hmm. photo. The first class is like, as long as you submit a photo every day, you're going to get an A at the end of the 30 days. The other one is like, as long as you're is a quality material, that photo is going to win. And what's been proven out across disciplines is that the class that did the multiple iterations had a better output than the one that was trying to solve for quality. Like the arguably the first one's like, oh, all I really had to do was like submit a photo. It didn't have to be like world-class quality. It's not the best I could do, but just by virtue of doing it, they're going to make it better and make it better. At the end of the 30 days, they produced a better photo and they produced a better clay pot. If it was a pottery class. Uh, than the other one that was solving for quality. And they were like too much in their heads trying to say, oh, I'm going to do the best I can do. Like, no, just do it repeatedly. Uh, but the key to that, it has to be meaningful iteration. If you're just iterating and doing the same thing, you're not learning anything, there's no feedback loop, then the iterations have no value. But if you if you have a tight feedback loop, like I'm going to do this thing and I immediately get response back that tells me whether I got better or got worse, that is amazingly like powerful to be able to do that and compound it over time. So, So I think my... I'm not that special, candidly. It's like I'm willing to grind it out more than people that are smarter, and I'm a little bit smarter than people that are willing to work, uh, grind it out. That's my Venn diagram. Um, 
<laughs> that's awesome but uh, have you you've probably seen this or maybe you guys have done this but there's this group of like consultants that created this thing called the marshmallow challenge which they go to a company and they give you like a bunch of um sticks uh one marshmallow some tape and like a string or something like that have you seen this darmesh i think i have yep but i'll, I'll kind of summarize for those it's who, yeah yeah those who have it basically they give they give you this these set of um tools and they say, okay, your goal, the game is you need to get a marshmallow. The winning team is going to have a marshmallow like as high above this table as you can. So build your tower as high as you can. If you can, whoever gets the highest marshmallow, whoever's tower has the highest marshmallow at the end wins. We're, right? We're going to stop the clock after 30 minutes. We're going to say hands up and, you know, your marshmallow, whoever's marshmallow is standing the highest wins. Okay, good, good. So they go and they do this test with like a bunch of different types of people. They do it with consultants. They do it with like kind of doctors and they do it with, um, you know, engineers, they do it with um, whoever creatives like ad agency types. And they're trying to see, okay, which group is going to perform the best at a challenge like this. And basically across the board, what they found is that uh, they suspected maybe engineers are going to do the best and the engineers do on average do a little bit better than, than others, but not by much. They actually are all pretty horrible at it. And I think like, you know, whatever, 80, 90% of the groups at the end of the challenge, their marshmallow is on the ground. It is fallen over. It never even, um, you know, got up at all. Like if you had just put it, if you had just taken like, you know, two sticks and put a one marshmallow on top, you would have won the challenge. Um, and the reason why is, and, and they, they did this test with kids and kids actually are phenomenal at this. Uh, kids on average will beat the adults at this game. And why is that? Well, because what what happened is that they would give the project to the adults and the adults would spend the first five minutes like delegating roles. Like, okay, you're going to be the person who does the planning. You're going to be the one who you work on the sticks and the, the bottom structure. We're going to do this over here. Then they would just like kind of draw out like, okay, let's do a teepee. No, let's do a, a, a ladder. Let's do this a cube or shape or whatever. And they would do all this. And at the very end, they would try to stick the marshmallow on. And what they don't realize is the marshmallow is a lot heavier than it looks and it will outweigh the sticks and it'll all fall over. And because they're doing that thing where they wait till the very end to like ship the final good product, they don't even realize where the flaw in their plan until like it's too late, essentially. Whereas what kids will do is kids will immediately grab the thing. They'll stick the marshmallow on. And it's like if the kids don't eat the marshmallow, the marshmallow will like get into the structure very quickly and they'll see, oh, it falls over. OK, it falls over. That means we need to iterate. and We need to do things differently than we would have otherwise assumed. And that like one lesson I've done at pretty much every company I've ever started, because it's the only way I can get engineers and designers who by nature are often like sort of like perfectionist or quality. And like they in their associate, they in their mind associate the longer we work at this, the better the quality will be before we ship yeah. it. And I'm always like, dude, let's ship it today. Let's see how bad it sucks. And then let's remove some suck from it. And like tomorrow it'll suck a little less. And then tomorrow it'll suck a little less again. And the, the best way I've been able to drive this point home is to give them the marshmallow challenge and not just like watch the video, watch the Ted talk. It's like, no, go fail at this so that you taste defeat. And then you will actually learn this lesson. Dude, that's like the greatest CEO thing that you've ever done. That's a good one. That's a really good one is to make people do this and then make them watch the Ted talk. That's like, that's a really good leadership tactic. I'm 100% going to steal that one day. Yeah, it's 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 an awesome one. Um, all right. I don't we, we went kind of long. I don't know if we were, we're good to keep going or not, but. Ben's telling me uh, wrap up, wrap it. but uh, but uh, Darmesh, this is awesome, man. I love having you around. Are you uh, you um, the last time you were on was like a year ago, I think. And I've been uh, like, yeah, I've been like begging you. I'm like, man, just come on. And so we messaged him <laughs> today and he goes, I'll just come on today. And I was like, all right, cool. Are you, uh, I actually, I have a quick question. What, 
you know, people ask me about selling to HubSpot and they're like, has it been good? From a creative perspective, it's been awesome. You guys haven't like, we haven't been told a thing on like what we can and cannot do. Of course, I don't think we do anything where anyone would ever tell us you can't do that. But, uh, well, maybe is there, Darmesh, do you ever get complaints about anything we say or that's do what I was going to ask that's <laughs> yeah. what I was going to ask is I there know. anything that like so far I guess there's nothing that's crossed the line because we've not heard a thing but like it we it's been crazy how productive uh this relationship has been I did not think that because you know I, I, people say one thing and the reality is different but it's not been yeah. that way that's been pretty cool yeah thank you I'm glad uh Glad that it's working out in your teams. It's, you folks have been kind of great for HubSpot. Um, and I know this keeps you up at night in terms of the valuation. I've thought about that a lot. Um, probably not as much as you have. But at the time, I, I, I would not beat yourself up over it. I think it was a fair deal. I, I don't know that. And even at that, just so you know, uh, even at that price, uh, and not, nothing to do with you, but like it was a board level discussion. We had to just like, okay, was, do we really want to, you know, not that it wasn't worth that, but was it worth that to us at the time? Because it was a relatively new, um, new thing that we were doing, but um, I, I think there's a for both sides, but yeah, for sure. I think there's a world. I think there's a world where in one to three years, the podcast alone is worth more than the deal. Yes, I definitely see that. Yes. Um, yeah. But in the same way to kind of, when we can kind of wrap on this is that when we were talking early in the beginning of the episode around kind of compensation as being just one of the kind of dimensions of value in, in a acquisition, the kind of the valuation that you get the price tag is just one dimension of value. Then the rest of it is how happy are you? How happy is the team? Did you meet people that will kind of, uh, you will enjoy working with in your future years? Are, your, are there your future co-founders? That kind of thing. It's like, uh, we know that this is not forever. We, like, we know that going in with, uh, even with people we hire, uh, but especially with uh, M&A. But um, yeah, hopefully the in aggregate, um, you know, HubSpot delivers a bunch of value. That's my uh, pitch for why it's okay to join HubSpot if you're ever uh, out there looking. But <laughs> No, it was awesome. Well, thank you. This is awesome. Sean, what do you think? Yeah, great episode. And I'm glad you used our line against us. I, I, I He'd emailed us something. I was like, oh, you should come back on sometime, which is like the sometime is like one of the most dangerous words in the in English language. Time. Yeah, because yeah. it, it's like you think it's soon and in reality, it's never. Um, and you pulled a great move, which was what we talk about, which is like forget scheduling stuff. Like either I want to do it and I, if I if I can do it right now, let's do it right now. And if not, like then let's not schedule it for the future because just because we didn't want to do it right now. And you were like, how about today? And we were like, all right, let's do it. Let's do it. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And I, I intentionally made it um, like open. It's like, okay, I knew when my last meeting was, it's like anytime after this. So it's not even like, Oh, like I, I could have made it work this afternoon, but I was only available for the small window. It's like, no, any time between 2 PM and midnight, <laughs> if, you had said, <laughs> if you had come back, I would have been, let's do it. It's uh, yeah. That's awesome. It's awesome. Well, it's a lot of Thanks fun doing this. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks.